over the past couple of months, we've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's a revolutionary sermon that turned the culture upside down. Jesus isn't holding back because there's too much at stake. The religious teachers were twisting the law, trying to appear godly while they were actually minimizing the law. Jesus shows us six areas where the Pharisees, while professing to obey God, were actually lowering the standards of God. Last week, we looked at murder and the sin behind the sin. Today, we're going to look at adultery and the sin behind that sin. This is obviously a sensitive topic. I preached on lust from Proverbs a couple of years ago, and there was a new family from a conservative background who started attending on that day. It was surely a surprising introduction to the church. If this is your first time to us at Redeemer, welcome. We're glad that you're here. I know you'll never forget your first visit with us. It will be memorable, and I pray you won't forget it. It's because it's no accident that you're here this morning. God brought you to this room on this morning to hear the good news, to hear the news of hope. Now, it may feel awkward to hear a sermon on this. It may not be normal for your culture to talk about these sins. Maybe your old church never addressed these topics. But Jesus does. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. If you're new to us, our church's aim is simply to preach what's in the Bible. These are God's words to us. Well, as I'm preaching today, you may feel like I'm speaking directly to you. People often come up to me after the service and they say, Pastor, Pastor, were you speaking to me? And I say, yes, I was speaking to you. I may not know exactly what's happening in your life, but God always speaks to his people through his word. That's why we aim to preach the Bible, not our own ideas. There's a story during the Great Awakening in North America. It's a time where people were coming to Christ at a, at a rapid rate in the northeastern part of the United States. And the most prominent pastor and theologian of that day was a man named Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards was preaching to 800 men in a prayer meeting. There was a teaching time and a, a prayer time. And during that meeting, a woman sent a message in private to ask the men to pray for her husband, who was loving and prideful. Hearing the man was actually present, Edwards got up and he actually read the entire letter to the assembly. He then asked for the man who had written the letter to raise his hand so they could pray for him. That's a bold move. You know what happened? 300 men raised their hands each man convicted of his sin. A Redeemer Church, God is speaking to you today. He's speaking to you each and every day from his word. And these verses on lust and adultery have weighed heavily on my heart. They're heavy verses. But they've weighed heavily on my heart because it's entirely possible to ruin your marriage before it ever starts. Lust and adultery can wreck your life. And most of all, unrepentant sin leads to hell. Now, that's not me talking. That's Jesus talking. My goal is simply in preaching to communicate what the text says, what the text means, and how to apply it to our lives. And here's what Jesus says. This is the main point this morning. Lust destroys. Cut it out before you go to hell. 
That might sound rough, but that's what Jesus says in the passage. It's his main point, and it's our point this morning. Lust destroys. Cut it out before you go to hell. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, Jesus begins by restating the seventh commandment from Exodus 20. Adultery is a married person having sex outside their covenant of marriage. Jesus is not saying sex is bad. Implied here is that intimacy between a man and a woman within the confines of a covenant marriage is a good thing. God created marriage and sex to be a blessing. Sexual intimacy is God's way of saying to another image bearer that I belong completely and exclusively to you. It's not merely a bodily function as if you can somehow go to bed with someone and leave your soul in the other room. No, two are united as one flesh. A miraculous spiritual union takes place when a marriage is consummated. It's not something we can separate. Adultery is a perversion of that gift. This is also why premarital sex is a sin. The point of sex is to celebrate this covenant-keeping love. All sex outside a covenant mocks God's plan and is a lie. This is serious. This is why in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 20, the punishment for adultery was death. Adultery shatters lives, disrupts families, and despises God. Few things bring more pain. And when you're tempted, my friend and fellow pastor, Garrett Kell, says it's helpful to envision your specific consequences. Now, married friends, envision the end of your sin. Think about the aftermath of your adultery. You've committed adultery. Think about the aftermath. If, if it were me, if it were, were me committing adultery, I'd have to go talk to the elders Maybe I'd grab one or, or reach out to all of them, and I'd have to tell them what happened. And in shock and tears, they would pray for me. And then the trip home would be agonizing, going past my children's school, down the streets of our neighborhood where our family played together and walked together. I'd have to open the front door of my house after getting dropped off, and I'd have to go inside, and I'd give my children a hug. I'd walk past those family pictures on the walls, those pictures bringing up memories of of good times we had together and realizing that our lives would never be the same. Then I'd have to go find my wife, and before we could even talk about the day, I'd have to tell her, hey, I've, I've, I've got something I have to tell you. And go into a private room, and within seconds after telling her what I had done, she's fallen to the ground in tears, weeping. And I'd want more than anything to give her a hug, but she wouldn't want me to touch her in that moment. And what about my kids? Oh, how much pain and shame would they feel? I have to tell my wife's parents. And they entrusted me with their daughter. I'd have to tell them what I've done. And then my fellow church members, I'd have to tell you the truth. 
people who've trusted me with leading them and trusted me with preaching to them. I'd have to go before you and I'd have to beg you to continue worshiping Jesus even though I've lived a lie. And then I'd have to consider my sin before God. I broke my covenant. I've told God that what he's provided for me wasn't good enough, that I've made a mockery of Christ's marriage to the church. After all, our earthly marriages are to be a picture of that heavenly marriage. Well, imagining this kind of scenario scares me to death. Adultery betrays God, and it destroys lives. Hope you feel that as we walk through the text today. Adultery betrays God and it destroys lives. And notice that Jesus gives no qualifications to his statement. Jesus doesn't say you shall not commit adultery, but if you're really unhappy with your spouse, then it's okay. Or you shall not commit adultery, but if your spouse is not being intimate with you, then it's okay. Or you shall not commit adultery, but if you find someone else who makes you happy, then it's okay. There's no qualifications, no exceptions. And the Pharisees and scribes were actually agreeing with them. They said, that's right, Jesus. Adultery is sin. We follow the law 100%. But Jesus says that's not true. The scribes and Pharisees weren't holding to a high standard of the law at all. They lowered the law for their own purposes. They did the same thing with murder. And now with adultery, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Scribes, Pharisees, let me explain to you Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, guilty. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. Wait a minute. This is crazy. Are you saying that what we think about constitutes adultery? That's what he was saying. He was defining the seventh commandment in terms of the tenth, the prohibition against coveting, to lust and to covet. It's the same idea. When you lust, you're desiring something you're not supposed to have. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to notice beauty or elegance, but it's another thing to turn an observation over to the imagination and to entertain immoral fantasies. You could be in conversation with someone for hours and not lust, but you could turn and look at someone for five seconds and be in lust. Now look closely at the verse. Jesus isn't forbidding us from... Jesus is forbidding us from looking in order to lust, meaning that's our goal, that's our hope, that's what we're doing. Lust isn't recognizing beauty, it goes beyond that. It's using someone's image as a means of fantasy. This is pornography, right? Looking with lustful intent. Jesus singled out men in this passage because they were the ones with the greatest rights in these days. They were the scribes and Pharisees who were outwardly abusing the law. But certainly what Jesus talks about here applies to women as well as men. None are exempt. 
men and women, what Jesus is saying is if you're using pornography, you're committing adultery. Now, it's not exactly the same as having sexual relations outside the marriage bed, but it's sin, and Jesus calls it adultery. We need to call it what it is. This is also where physical adultery gets its start. It's been said that adultery starts in the head before it ever gets to the bed. And it's true, you start entertaining it in your mind. Physical adultery doesn't start one day. You don't just wake up in the morning, look at your day planner or calendar and diary and see an open slot at 2 p.m. and say, I think I'm going to commit adultery today. No one's done that. No one wakes up and in that day decides to do that. No, it's a thousand baby steps in the wrong direction. It's one compromise after another. It's one step after another until you get to the edge of the cliff and then finally fall off. I mean, think about King David. At a time where kings went to war, he stayed at home. In a culture where men didn't walk on the roof by themselves because you could see next door, he did. And he saw a woman. But instead of leaving, instead of turning around, he kept looking and looking. And then after going back in the house, he kept thinking about her. And then he asked someone to bring the woman to him. And he slept with her. And that's not to mention what was going on in King David's head before that day. Just one baby step after another baby step, one compromise after another compromise. It's being where you're not supposed to be and looking where you're not supposed to look. Now, for us, it's being alone when we're lonely. It could be locking the door, staying up too late. It's the WhatsApp messages that become one too many. It's fill in the blank. Any step that takes you one step closer to sin. Jesus says we're to take drastic steps to avoid compromise. Look at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus uses two parallel illustrations to demonstrate the seriousness of this sin. The eye is often the trigger for lust. The hand is associated with the theft of adultery. And the right side was seen as the most powerful side. Jesus is saying that lust destroys, cut it out before you go to hell. Take drastic measures to stop the cycle of sin before it's too late. One lustful look is never enough. No one's ever looked at pornography and thought, wow, that was really nice. I like that. My heart is now full. I never need to look at it again. I've had enough. No one feels that way. No one has enough. It's never enough. One look never fills your heart. You want another and another. You have to tear out your eye. You have to cut off your hand. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, does that mean that a hundred of us come next Friday with pirate patches on our right eye? Are we all suddenly left-handed by next Friday? 
Is that what Jesus is saying? No, friends, the problem is not with our body parts. The problem is with our hearts. And you can't cut those out. Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. In fact, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD actually banned Christians from tearing out their eyes and cutting out their hands. If a person could be cured by cutting an eye out, then Jesus was really short-sighted here because everyone knows a one-eyed person can still lust. Jesus' point, you do whatever you can to remove the source of temptation. You tear it out. You cut it off. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. We can't minimize it. We can't soften it. Jesus is saying, if you don't fight lust, you won't go to heaven. Why? Because this is what a Christian does. A Christian fights. If you're truly saved, you'll fight. It doesn't mean you'll always 100% succeed. You won't be flawless by any means. But a saving faith is a lust-fighting faith. A saving faith fights. Better to deal with lust now and deny yourself than to live in eternal judgment forever. Hell is a destination your lusts are taking you. Fix that in your mind. Is unhindered lust really worth hell? Cut off the temptations that lead you to lust. Is it your phone? Is it your computer? Don't look at pornography. Friend, it's fake. It degrades men and degrades women, and it messes you up because it's a lie. If you think those images are what sex is about, then you've been lied to. Put procedures in place to protect you from watching. Well, I have accountability software called Covenant Eyes on my computer and on my phone. My wife gets reports that summarize everything I've read and watched. Now, you never get mature enough where you don't need accountability. Well, Redeemer, your pastor, the one who preaches to you every week, has his internet logs go to his wife. I have friends that ask me specific questions about what I'm looking at, about what I'm doing, about what I'm thinking about. You know why I do this? because I know that nobody has graduated into sinlessness until heaven. The moment you think you don't need help in your fight against sin is actually your first step towards hell. Is your internet browsing activity monitored by a brother or sister in Christ? Well, if not, why not? There's a great blessing in this kind of transparency. Not only do I receive accountability, but my wife doesn't have to wonder what I'm looking at. I promise you something. If your spouse or ministry leader got those reports, you'll think twice before clicking. You will. Well, maybe you're not looking at pornography, but what are you clicking on? Do those side ads or illicit news stories at the bottom of some of the, quote, most reputable news sites? Do those intrigue you? Do you click on them? Are you casually scrolling through social media but then get distracted? Deactivate your Instagram account. Block yourself from going on YouTube. If you have to quickly change your computer screen or your phone screen when your wife or friend or parent 
or pastor walks by, you're probably in sin. You should be unashamed at your internet browsing. Anybody should be able to look into what you're doing and see something that's commendable to Christ. Well, maybe the internet's not a problem for you. What about what's going in your mind? If you have issues when you go to the beach or to the pool, maybe you shouldn't go there alone or at all. You may have to ask your company to rearrange your work travels if that's a problem. Change professions if you need to. Move flats if you're tempted. Go to bed on time instead of staying up late watching TV when everyone else is asleep. Don't browse the romance novels or the magazines at the bookstore. Tear off your eye and cut off your hand. I had a friend at university, uh, this is long ago, 25 years ago, and I had a friend, I'm standing in the lobby area by the front desk, and he just starts carrying his 40-inch television. Again, 25 years ago, we had none of these really thin, flat screens that you have today. So some of you remember the olden days. He was carrying this huge box through the lobby, barely stumbling along the way, and we were all watching, wondering, what is he doing? Well, he pushed his way through the door, walked back to the rubbish bin, to this big trash dumpster, and he just threw his TV in. And he said he had had enough of his sin, that he was tired of it. He tore out his eye, and he cut off his hand. He did whatever it took to cut off the temptation of sin. Oh, friend, if the most precious thing you have causes you to sin, get rid of it. It's not worth it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, no sacrifice is too great if it enables us to conquer a lust which cuts us off from Jesus. Lust kills. Cut it out before you go to hell. If you've sinned, repent today. Come to Jesus today. Bring it before God and you will feel the freedom that you have in Christ. If you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you need to stop. You're in danger of hell. Confess your sin. There are men here in this room who need to stop going to massage parlors and seeing prostitutes. If that's you, confess and stop. Turn to God. Bring it to the light. I know there are secret homosexual relationships going on where there's not a single other person in this room who knows what's happening in your life. Oh, friend, bring it to the light. Get help. Some of you are up late at night in sexually explicit chat rooms. Others are reading explicit stories or novels. Repent and turn to Christ. Confess to God. But you can't stop there. I've heard from many well-meaning people who said, well, I've confessed to God. It's between me and him, and we're all right. I've asked for forgiveness, so everything's okay. No need to confess to anyone else. But James 5 actually commands us to confess our sins to one another. This is not an option for us as Christians. This is what we do. The Bible says that to kill sin, we actually have to bring our sin into the light to kill it. And we must confess to one another those sins. Now, your relationship with God is a community project. It's not a solo venture. Well, here's how confession works. If you've never done it before, you find an elder, a church leader, your spouse, a trusted friend in the church, and you tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's it. 
It's not rocket science. You share your sin specifically. You share it quickly after it's happened. And you share honestly. When we confess our sins to God and to one another, another, there's redemption in the pain. And when you talk to us, if you come to us as church leaders, it won't surprise us. And we won't condemn you. We won't condemn you. We'll open our arms to you because Jesus opens his arms to you. We'll tell you that Jesus loves you. We'll tell you that Jesus wants to to be with you and to help you through the sin. We'll help you. We'll walk alongside you in this journey to fight for faith and purity. Well, this may be one of the hardest things that you do, but there's forgiveness in Christ. If you confess, you'll find joy and freedom in getting your sin into the light. You'll begin to desire the things of God as he changes your heart. Now, don't be ashamed. Don't risk your eternal life in order to save yourself from some awkward conversations and earthly consequences. Let me speak for a few minutes to our children and youth who are here. I see many of you scattered throughout the room, some in the back, some here on the sides. Jumpstart regeneration, our preteens and teenagers. Bring your sin into the light. Save your life. I plead with you, save your life and cut off your sin. If someone waved a loaded gun at your face, you would run for cover because you knew it was dangerous. I want to tell you those pictures and those videos, those articles, those books, those conversations that are sexual in nature are lethal. Run away. Run away. Those images you're looking at when you're supposed to be doing your homework are ruining your life. I mean, do you think that what comes across your WhatsApp group chats with classmates are harmless? I've seen what even primary school kids are looking on their phones. I've sat behind them appalled and shocked at what these kids are looking at on their phones. And so if you're a teen, if you're a youth here, I know what you're tempted to look at. I know what you might be looking at. Don't do it. Run. Cut it out before it's too late. Hear Jesus' words. Get off the highway that's leading to your grave. You may think it's harmless. You may not know this, but you're shipwrecking your future marriage before it starts. You're burning images in your brain that you can't erase. You're destroying your ability to interact with the people around you in ways that God intended you to. I heard this week that some of our teens watch shows like Game of Thrones. I've never seen it. But I've heard that it has sex and rape and incest and nudity. Is this something that you or anybody here should be watching? Can any Christian watch this type of show? How can we worship God and watch that kind of stuff? I mean, one Christian told me, it's just entertainment. It's just history. No, friend, it's poison. It's not entertainment. It's poisoning your soul. And I pray that you hear that warning this morning out of love and urgency. And the question isn't how close we can get to the edge of the cliff. The question isn't how close can we get to sin without sinning. The question is, how can I treasure Christ in all things? 
That's the question. And teenage boys, for those of you in this room who are teenage boys, I know the temptation is strong. I talked with a few other men this week, and we reflected that the ages of 12 through 15 and beyond is a critical time in a boy's life. It's where perhaps you're already been confronted and exposed to pornography. It's a time where many get addicted to it. If that's you right now, you are setting up patterns that will destroy your life. The decisions you make now in the privacy of your life will have massive ramifications. Cut it off. Tear it out. I plead with you, repent. Don't look. Don't look at those images. You'll regret it for the rest of your life. And I wish right now I could sit right across from you one-on-one and plead with you and beg you to stop and to tell you that this will ruin your life, don't do it. Friend, God can change you, though. I became a Christian when I was 16 years old, and God radically changed my heart. Oh, teenage boy, turn to Jesus. And teens and youth, don't send explicit pictures to each other. Don't do it. I know it's happening. I know it's happening. Don't send explicit pictures to each other. Girls, don't send boys pictures of yourself when they ask you. And I know they're asking you. You don't need to be accepted by them. The boys are using you. Find your acceptance in Christ. If any of you are engaged in sexual activity, stop walking to your death. Preteens, teens, cry out to God for help. Stop walking to your death. Talk to your parents. They love you. Talk to Johan and Mike or any of the youth leaders. What if our youth group here, what if it could be a place where our teens bring their sins into the light and start to walk for Jesus for what, Lord willing, will last a lifetime of faithfulness. And in teens, as dramatic as this sounds, if you're losing the battle with lust, you may need to ask your parents to take away your internet privileges. You might need to hand your phone back to your parents. Do you need to do this? Do you need a smartphone? Now, if you need this kind of accountability, but you desperately still need a phone, Christmas is coming. Write this down. Ask your parents to buy you an old Nokia 3310. You know, the the phones without the internet and without the pictures. Some of us remember these phones. I'm serious. I did research for you this week, and on soup.com, you can find them in stock for 85 dirhams. They're on sale, and you can get them delivered by Christmas. You'll be so cool and retro, you'll be the only kid in your class with one of these. Everybody's going to want to see this thing. In all seriousness, teens and youth, hear Jesus' warning to you in this sermon. Don't ruin your life. Lust kills. Cut it out before you go to hell. And parents... Parents, the devices we buy for our children are no mere toys. Do you know what your children are using their devices for? 
Have you set up accountability for them while they use their phones and tablets and Netflix and YouTube and iTunes and their computers? Sit down with your spouse and revisit the reasons your children have access to the things that they have access to. We don't just give our kids what they want. We love them enough to only give them what they need. Depending on the situation, you may need to actually restrict your child's access to certain things or take them away entirely. Out of our deep love for our kids, we sometimes disappoint them in order to protect them. And don't be passive. Now, you may think your kids are wonderful, and parent, I'm sure they're great. But please don't be naive. Your children are not angels. I'm sorry to break it to you today. Your children are not perfect. They need our active engagement with their hearts and lives. Don't be complicit in your child's death by being complacent in their lives. Don't let them walk down to the edge of the cliff. In love, stop them. They may not like it, but it's out of love. And parents do hard things. Our homes are not kid-centered homes where we do whatever our kids want. Our kids are Christ-centered homes where we as parents do what Christ wants us to do, even when it's hard. Parents, talk to your kids about sexual temptation. Make it an open topic of conversation. Let them know you love them and that they can ask you anything. Tell your kids about the issue of modesty. Talk about self-control and model purity for them. Moms and dads, be the kind of man and woman you want your children to become. Lust kills. Help your children cut it out before they go to hell. Now, men, single or married, we need to lead in our homes and lead in the church. We need to stand up and live holy lives. We need to, to worship God. We need to be men of the word. We need to be men who are praying for our families and praying for our fellow church members. We need to be men who are walking with Jesus, men who are modeling purity men who are tearing out our eyes and cutting off our hands. We need to do whatever we can to keep sin out of our lives. We need to seek the things that are above, not on earth. We need to set our minds on things that are above. Now, I was noticing in my own life over the past several months that the times that I was tempted to lust or tempted to think about unholy things was when I laid down at bed at night and tried to fall asleep. So I realized I had to do something, and so I started memorizing Scripture uh, more fervently. And what I would do is as soon as I laid down in bed at night, I would recite over and over and over again different passages of Scripture that I had memorized, and I would do that until I was too tired to do it anymore, and then I'd fall asleep. I'm weak. We're weak. We do whatever it takes, and men, you need to lead. Let's model this. Guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. And if, if you're a married man, we lead by enjoying the wife of our youth as well. Husbands, pursue intimacy with your wife. This is one of the defenses against lust, not in a self-serving way, but in a way to love your wife sacrificially and to serve her. And to the women here, to the women single and married, all counseling statistics say lust is an issue not just for men, but for women too. It's just not something that people often talk about. Pornography, romance novels, your thought life, dreaming about an illicit relationship. Maybe your husband is unkind to you and there's somebody else showing kindness to you and giving attention to you and you start 
entertaining thoughts about a relationship with them. If you're a woman struggling with lust, don't keep this to yourself. A little awkwardness in confession is worth it for your soul. Bring it out into the light. We want to care for you. Talk to another trusted woman in the church. Talk to one of the elders, and we'll connect you with a trusted woman in the church who can walk alongside you in the sin. If, you've, if you're a woman here, maybe for you as you listen to this, what comes to your mind first and foremost is that you've been sinned against by another man's lust. Maybe your husband committed adultery. Maybe there's strangers on the street who heckle you. Or there's a boss at work who behaves inappropriately towards you. Let me say this as clearly as I can to you this morning. It's not your fault. Woman, if you've been sinned against, I want to tell you it's not your fault. No matter your sin, you can't force a man to sin against his will. If your husband blames you for his adultery, if your husband blames you for his pornography addiction, it's not your fault. That's a ridiculous statement. He's culpable for his own sin. Even if a wife treats her husband poorly, his response to her sin should not be to multiply his own sin, but should be to pursue her towards Christ. One last thing I want to say to wives, remember that our sin is primarily against God. So if your husband sins, it's against God first and foremost. It's not fundamentally about you. You need to remember how you've been forgiven by God and to fight for your husband's faith. Pray for him and encourage him to believe in the gospel. Church, we do whatever we can to cut out sin in our lives, and we don't give up. We, we, we fight. We do whatever it takes. That's what Jesus is saying here. We have a responsibility. But of course, none of this is going to help us if we don't get to the root of the problem. There's a problem with our hearts. Recently in our home, we had a strange odor problem. We moved homes a few months ago, and for the first several weeks, there was a wretched smell that just permeated several of the rooms. It was horrible. The summer heat made it worse. It was awful. I was ready to move out. It was that bad. We couldn't stand it. My wife tried everything. She bought all kinds of powerful scents. She put on and lit candles. There were air fresheners, gel ones. There were spray ones that every few seconds would spray another spray. She tried everything, but all to no avail. Nothing worked. And then finally, she asked an electrician to look in the ceiling panels. And there they were, three dead, decaying rats. Well, this explained why nothing worked. No amount of effort or smells could overcome the rats. Now, of course, we had the rats removed. We set up more traps to get rid of any of their friends. We removed the tree branches that were connected with the balconies. Gloria even started being nice to the stray cat that lives in our neighborhood. We did whatever we could. But friends, trying to cover up the smell of death won't work. Same thing with lust. You can do all kinds of accountability. You can try really hard. But ultimately, you will fail if you don't go to the root. You need to remove the death to get rid of it, to go to the source of the problem. Adultery and lust always starts in the heart. To lust is to want what you don't have and weren't meant to have. 
It rejects God's gifts and says to God, what you've given me isn't good enough, whether it's our singleness or the spouse in our marriage. It rejects God. It seeks satisfaction apart from God. It's the ultimate pride and arrogance. In your lust and adultery, you're telling God that he got it wrong. And so like a thief, you steal what's not yours. But in our theft, we fail to see that only Jesus can satisfy our hearts. Oh, you need a new heart. If you're not a Christian, you need a new heart that beats for the gospel every single day. You can't fight lust only with rules. You have to fight with a superior joy. Unless your heart is transformed by the beauty of Jesus, you'll always want more of what you're not supposed to have. This is the only way to conquer lust. There has to be a greater beauty in your heart. Turn to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, turn to him today. Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is the only way. He provides a way for us to be reconciled to God. And when you come to Jesus and you trust in him to save you, he gives you a new heart, a new ability to see him in the world as you should. That's why Jesus came to die. Jesus died for our sin of lust and atoned for our adultery. If you trust Jesus, lust won't be the final word in your life. Church, fellow Christian, remember what God has done for you. As temptations come in front of you, look to this greater beauty. Jesus came to us, lived for us, died for us, rose for us. Jesus sustains our very life, every minute of it. Jesus took our sins, every drop of it. Jesus befriends us. He's adopted us into his family as his child. And Jesus is with us now. Our chains are gone. Our debt is paid. The cross has overcome the grave. Jesus' blood sets us free. He forgives us. And our sin is as far as the east is from the west. It's because Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has prepared a place for us in heaven where there's no pain, where there will be no temptation, a place where there will be no sin and all joy. Oh, Christian, look at your sin through the lens of Christ and his death on the cross. And friend, if you've sinned greatly, it may be impossible to fully erase the memory, but God can forgive your sin completely. Your lust doesn't have to define you. If you're a Christian, your greatest identity is that you are in Christ. Look no further than Matthew chapter 1 for encouragement. In the same book that we're studying now, just a few chapters before, we see this genealogy. We see this list of the descendants of Jesus. And who do we see on this list? We see Rahab the prostitute. Tamar committed incest. Then we see King David, the adulterer. God transforms messed up people for his glory, and we're all messed up. God loves to take those who've had the worst pasts and make them into showcases of grace. That's what he does. He makes, he makes wicked things new. He transforms hearts, and the good news is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, in just a minute, we're going to take communion. In a minute, we're going to have this, this family meal as believers together. And if you're a follower of Christ who's repented of your sins, we invite you to partake in this feast with us. If not, 
we'd encourage you, let the bread, let the cup pass you by. 1 Corinthians 11 warns you, warns all of us and says, if we're not a believer, if we're not a follower of Christ, if we're not currently repenting of our sins, by taking it, we call judgment upon ourselves. Now, Christian, as you hold the bread and the cup in just a moment, in your very hands, remember, remember your sin. Remember the depths of your sin and remember the glories of the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, some of you just need to sit back and let the bread and cup pass you by, and you need to repent of your sin of lust and adultery. You need to take the first step of repentance, which is to tell God. The second step may need to happen after this church service to a brother or sister here. Repent and look to God. Look to him now so you might see him forever. That's our goal. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want to see God. I want to see God. I want to see him. I want that so badly for myself. I want to see him in all of his glory forever and ever. And oh, friends, I want that for you. I want you to see God. I want you to behold his beauty forever. Do you want that? Do you want to see God? Well, before we take part in communion, let's take a moment now of silent reflection. Some of us, this is a time of repentance. For others, see if we might take part in the Lord's Supper in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's do that now for a moment. Father, we come before you in need of grace. Lord, we need you. Every hour, we need you. Would we understand the weight of our sin and the wonder of your forgiveness? Would we be free from the bondage of sin and experience everlasting joy? May this bread and this cup nourish our souls as we remember the hope we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.